0: Revelation chapter 2, we're going to go through this chapter tonight, and what we're looking at is the letters of the seven churches. If you were here a number of years ago when I preached an individual message on each of these churches, I'm going to do more or less a survey. And if you have some questions about any of these churches, you feel free to stick around and ask me tonight, afterwards, or at some point later. I'll be glad to talk to you about them. But write this letter, this is from Jesus, write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Now, the angel, the word angel means messenger. That could literally be a supernatural angel assigned to watch over this church. Most commentators believe that it's the pastor of those churches. My wife will tell you, though, I'm no angel. So I tend to think of this more as being A heavenly being, we know that there are heavenly beings that we cannot see. But then it makes no sense to say, write this to the angel. The angel already knows. So I think common sense says the messenger would be the pastor of the church. So these are written to the pastors and they share with the congregations. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know all the things you do. I've seen your hard work and your patient endurance, and I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered they are liars, and you have patiently suffered for me without quitting. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. But this is in your favor. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans just as I do. Well, anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Now, he's speaking to all the churches, although this letter is to the ch- this church. This letter is for all of us. All the churches would have heard these letters read. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. Second church. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Smyrna. This is the message from the one who is the first and the last, who is dead but is now alive. I know about your suffering and your poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blessings of those, the blasphemy of those opposing you. They say they are Jews, but they are not because their synagogue belongs to Satan. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. The devil will throw some of you into prison to test you. You will suffer for 10 days. But if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Whoever is victorious will not be harmed by the second death. Third church. Write this letter to the, church, to the angel of the church in Pergamum. This is the message from the one with the sharp two-edged sword. I know that you live in the city, and listen to that. I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne, yet you have remained loyal to me. You refuse to deny me, even when Antipas, my faithful servant, was martyred among you there in Satan City. But I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. Repent of your sin or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them, who those people in this church, with the sword of my mouth. Anyone who hears must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven, and I will give to each one a white stone, and on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. Fourth church. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Thyatira. This is the message from the Son of God whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose feet are like polished bronze. I know all the things you do. I've seen your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance, and I can see your constant improvement in all these things. But I have this against you. You're permitting that woman, that Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her immorality. Therefore, I will throw her on a bed of suffering, and those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly unless they repent and turn away from her evil deeds. I will strike her children dead, or her disciples. then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches out the thoughts and intentions of every person and I will give to each of you whatever you deserve but I also have a message for the rest of you in Thyatira who have not followed this false teaching deeper truths as they call them depths of Satan actually I will ask nothing more of you except that you hold tightly to what you have until I come to all who are victorious who obey me to the very end, to them I will give authority over the nations. They will rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. They will have the same authority I received from my Father, and I will also give them the morning star. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what He is saying to the churches. And again, Revelation 1-3, God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church. And he blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says, for the time is near. Heavenly Father, tonight we read these words and rejoice, and yet we tremble as well. We read these words and we find them comforting, but we find them sobering as well. And We read these words and we remember with gratitude all of those faithful witnesses that have come before us. And I pray that in our generation, in our community, Lord, in our time, that those who succeed us, if you tarry, will look back and say they were faithful while we enjoy, Lord, the blessings of eternal life in heaven with you. For it's in Jesus' holy name I pray. And everybody said amen amen god bless you you can be seated tonight well you know that normally in a series i'll go back and just try to do a little bit of review and um, i don't think i'm going to be able to do that in this series so again i will say we put these messages pastor mark gratefully give him a hand he's put these messages up online as they're coming up and the notes as well And so um, unlike most our other Wednesday night series, you can catch these online. I got a call today from a preacher's daughter, a pastor's daughter, dear friend in Miami, Florida, and said, I see you're preaching on the book of Revelation. I go, yeah. She says, are you going to scare them to death? And I said, no, I told our congregation last week that I find great comfort and I find great strength and encouragement. I got a call from a man in Georgia whose son has petrified because of a teaching he heard from Revelation, and he said, I would love to fly my son up if it's all right to spend a week with you and let you talk to him about prophecy in the book of Revelation. I said, you know, we'd love to have him. He's always welcome, but there's no need to do that. I'm going through a series right now, and if you'll go online, if he's really interested, and this is the test. You know, not a trip to Detroit and not a trip to see the Clantons, but if he's really interested, to follow online. And I'll show him why this book isn't a book to make you afraid, but it's a book to strengthen you. And God says he will bless you for hearing it and doing it. Can you say amen? amen? And I just looked out and saw Debbie Patton in the service tonight. Debbie, we're so glad you're here. Welcome, Debbie. You know, God just did a miracle in her life. So my advice to people about this prophecy or about the revelation is, as you read it, if you remember last week when I went through the different ways of interpreting it, I told you that I really believe the best way is to look at this from an eclectic approach. You want to take what it says about the future. You want to take the principles that it says, and I told you how some people built little tabernacles or camps around certain uh, uh interpretations of revelation. Take the best that you can. So just some real common advice. As you read this and as I preach through it, if the shoe fits, wear it. Amen? If the shoe fits, wear it. The church, as Jesus is writing to these seven churches in Turkey, and as I told you last week, it's on a circuitous route that a messenger would have traveled. The churches were guardians of the culture, and each local church in our day-to-day is a guardian of our culture. Our church, along with all the other Bible-believing churches in our community, we're put here to be salt and light of the culture. That's what I mean by guarding, by guarding the culture. Now, Ephesus was the most prominent city of the seven churches. It was also the center of the cult of Artemis. And those of you who've read the book of Acts and studied the book of Acts, you know that, Art, that in Ephesus was the center of Artemis worship or Diana worship. You remember the great riot that broke out there because a revival happened. And, you know, revival is fine with everybody until it starts affecting their bottom line. You know, liquor stores... No place, strip bars, strip clubs, gambling parlors. They don't mind, that's a real thing out of the past, excuse me, it's casinos these days. You know, they don't mind revival in the church as long as it doesn't affect their bottom line. But when people are saved and filled with the Holy Spirit and want to live for God and all of a sudden these places dry up and it affects their bottom line, they're not too happy about what's going on in the community, and so they began to oppose it. And that was what happened in Ephesus. Citizens of Ephesus, Acts chapter 19, verse 35, he said, everyone knows that Ephesus is the official guardian of the temple of the great Artemis, whose image fell down to us from heaven. You see, there are pagans that believe that they're to be the guardians of the culture. And when the church shyly retreats into the cocoon of its sanctuaries and the safety of its homes, we are no longer being the salt and light of our community. Salt has to get out of the salt shaker in order to be effective. Can you say amen? The city of Ephesus was also the warden or the temple warden of two temples. One that was dedicated to the imperial cult, where Caesar was worshipped, and what meant what this meant was that Caesar worship played an important part in the life of the community. It played an important life part of the people who lived there because you had to pledge loyalty to to Caesar, and the church resisted this, and it caused them problems because. The church was not willing to say these simple three words, Caesar is Lord. Caesar didn't mind if you said Jesus is Lord too, but you couldn't confess that Caesar was Lord. Ephesus was also a place where many false teachers lived and taught. They attracted false teachers the way garbage attracts rats. It was a place where false teachers developed callings and cults and people and groups that followed them, and they were pretty eclectic. They were pretty, um, uh, they just merged everything together. There was a synergistic sense to their worship, and they didn't mind saying Caesar is Lord, and they didn't mind saying your religion is okay, and your religion is okay, and mine is okay because what they were doing were using religion to make a living. So there was a lot of false teachers that lived there. Paul would say in Ephesus to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 and verse 29, he says, I know that false teachers like vicious wolves will come in among you after I leave, not sparing the flock. In other words, the anointed ministry of Paul was so strong, his teaching ministry, his preaching ministry was so strong. The way he prayed, the way he taught and discipled the elders, he says, I fear that after I'm gone, that you will lower that bar, and the moment you do, then these false teachers will come in and deceive. He says to Timothy, young Pastor Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, when I left for Macedonia, I urged you to stay there in Ephesus. I mean, he, he loved this Ephesian church. And stop those whose teaching is contrary to the truth. So already these vicious wolves, these false teachers had come in. Don't let them waste their time in endless discussions of myths and spiritual pedigrees. These things only lead to meaningless speculations, which don't help people live a life of faith in God. You wouldn't know it because we just don't let it become an issue, but there have been numerous times over the years where I've had to confront people with false teaching and false doctrine. Sometimes it come in and will begin to try and tell other people about it. You would be surprised at the people who call me with their self-designated titles, that they're an apostle and God has given them a word that they're supposed to give to the church and they can come on a love-offering basis, you know, with this word for the church. There's nothing changes. Do you get that? Nothing changes. And the problem in the Ephesian church from the time of Paul to to, to the last part of the first century, the problem was discernment had become very weak in the Ephesian church. Discernment had become very weak. And what happened is because they, they, they were compromising in ways that you wouldn't think because of how Jesus complimented them, their discerning factor went down. You can be so obsessed with doctrine that you lose your discernment of people. As you know, Paul says, talking about the, again, the Ephesian church, as you know, everyone from the province of Asia has deserted me, even Phygellus and Hermogenes had deserted him. The next thing that the revelation reveals is a church that is going to grow in discernment. In Revelation chapter two, he says, you've examined the claims of those who say they're apostles, but they are not, but you have discovered they are liars. Now, you've got to hang on because this is very important. I just told you that their concern, overly concern for doctrine was making them weak in discernment. <coughs> but yet one of the things that Christ commends them for, <coughs> I forget, this is not on my chest anymore that uh, is that they they are exposing false teaching. What had happened was the Ephesian church had lost their first love. Now, their first love was not just for Jesus, it was for one another. Look at me for just a second. You see, oftentimes, people get so obsessed with loving Jesus. If I don't love you, I don't love Jesus. And if I don't love Jesus, I don't love you. And that's the reason this time of 40 days in fasting where we examine our hearts and we examine ourselves, it's so important for searching, because this first, you can't love God unless you can love your brother. If you say that, the book of 1 John says that you're a liar. And notice, I love this passage, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The one who walks is Jesus. The one is walking among the seven golden lampstands. He knows what's going on. Now, what you need to understand, This is a symbolism, this is a symbolism of the priestly guardians of the tabernacle. They were the people that would walk among, and remember last week I told you that the lampstands were menorahs. These were the early Christians still considered themselves Jews. We'll come to that in just a moment. But the lampstands were those seven candlestick menorahs, and one of the priests was responsible for walking among all of those things, and if something needed repair, if something needed more oil, he was to pour that in that. And Jesus is calling the church a lampstand, which is talking about the Holy Spirit, And he's walking through the church to do repair. I am so glad this is not my church. This is Jesus' church. And we welcome the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Can we give him a hand of praise for that tonight? And what had happened was they loved the Word of God. They loved the doctrine of Christ, but they had lost their first love of sharing Christ with lost people. They had lost their first love of sharing Christ with lost people. And brothers and sisters, look at me for just a moment. When you lose your first love for sharing Christ with lost people, then suddenly you are experiencing covenantal unfaithfulness. The, Jesus told us in Matthew 24, 12, sin will be rampant everywhere. The love of many will grow cold, but the one who deers, endures to the end will be saved, and the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it, and then the end will come. There is a direct, connection to our sharing Christ in evangelizing the world and the return of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now this is an important point right here because it's a part of covenant. It's the reason we've taught things like walk across the room. It's the reason we teach things like contagious Christianity. And if you've not been through that, we're not going to teach you seven steps to reach a lost person for Christ. I don't believe in those kind of things. We're going to teach you how to use your life, your personality, your life story to build relationships with lost people so that you can reach them for Jesus. Just a few moments ago, just before I walked into the service, I got a text from someone that uh, was a part of our congregation that has moved to another state out west now and they said pastor I've been building relationship with someone now for almost 2 years And so if you want to figure out who that was, it's about two years ago, they moved to the Southwest, had been building a relationship for two years, and I couldn't get to first base with them talking about Jesus. And tonight, they just left my house because they've run into a problem, and they've come and asked me to pray. From two years not believing in God to two years of needing God, God is always at work. Amen? And so, we have to build these covenantal relationships with one another, with Christ, where we see the world in our community as a mission field. Their zealousness for purity of doctrine caused them to lose their concern for the outside world. And that is what happens to so many congregations. I know because I've done so much consultation with churches The moment that you no longer love and serve and reach out to your community, you're in danger of losing your first love because if it doesn't matter to you that lost people are going to hell There's something wrong with your relationship with Jesus Christ. And so Jesus says, if you don't repent of this, you're gonna lose your lampstand. And the lampstand reflects the power of the Holy Spirit. You may have the form of a church. You may have a band. You may have a pastor. You may have a preacher. You may have congregants. You may have communion. You may have Christian education. You may have outreach of ministries because you just think that's the right thing to do. But friends, when we lose our love, Love for Christ and for the lost world that he died for we're in danger of losing the anointing of the Holy Spirit and then we have what the scriptures warn us of of a form of godliness that denies the power thereof and when you read about these suffering churches we are so blessed to be able to share our faith so Jesus is saying the Ephesians must regain their first love to gain access to the tree of life that's eternal life And you remember that image was in the book of Genesis. We talked about the tree of life there in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 3. But this is the background, everything I've just told you. Now remember, John's writing this, but he also wrote a gospel, and he also wrote three very brief epistles. One of those epistles is 1 John, and I've been quoting copiously to you tonight, from First John, because this letter, most scholars are agreed, this letter to this church is the background for the letter that John wrote in First John. And I want to tell you this one other thing that I think is important. Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, John discipled Polycarp. Polycarp more than likely heard this letter read to the Ephesian church because he became the Ephesian elder in the early part of the second century. I'm gonna refer to him twice tonight, but here's a quote from Polycarp when he was their pastor writing to them in the early second. This is just a few years after Revelation. He says, "'While I welcomed in God your well-beloved name, which you bear by natural right in an upright and virtuous mind, by faith and love in Christ Jesus our Savior, being imitators of God and having your hearts kindled in the blood of God.'" I believe based upon this, at least that next generation of Christ followers, they repented of their sins, and they regained their first love for Jesus, and they regained their first love for a lost world. May God do the same thing for you and me tonight. Amen? Let's give him another hand of praise this evening. By the way, it probably would help you to know tonight, I don't see these as some popular writers do as reflecting seven different ages where God deals with people differently. These are, as I said last week, there's seven literal churches. There's seven churches with principles, but Revelation does show us things about the future that we'll be getting into as we go along, like the great white throne judgment and many other things that will go along, but I think it's an error to try to force these letters to represent seven dispensations because you've got to do some really wonky, really weird things with the letter to kind of make it do that. So we need to pull out of these letters what the Word of God is left to say to us today as well. So let's look at the second one tonight. The church in Smyrna is faithful in persecution, but they must also be faithful to death. The church in Smyrna is faithful in persecution, but they must also be faithful in death. Revelation chapter 2 10. If you remain faithful even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. Man, that's not the word I want from God. I mean, what if I came to you tonight and I said, Dale, I've been praying for you, buddy. And God says to you, Dale, well, you, you don't thank me yet because I hadn't told you. And God says, you know, Dale, you've been faithful, but you've got to be faithful even to death because you're about to be killed for your faith. You go, well, thanks, Pastor. That's what I came to church on Wednesday night to hear. <laughs> you know, we've got to be willing to accept the Word of God, not only the the good words and the encouraging words but we've got to be willing to accept that word from God and trust him that in all things God is working for our good and for his glory amen and so when this church heard this letter it's this has got to be like a wow you've Some of us are going to die for our faith. Billy Graham, in a book I recommended last week, suffering has a mysterious unknown component. Christ commands us to overcome and the strength he alone can supply. And for those who have died as martyrs for the church, God gave them the strength. I would encourage you that you would uh, read Richard Warmbrand's book, Tortured for Christ, or maybe some, I'll be happy to recommend some to you, of believers even in our generation that have suffered for their faith in Christ. This church has a lot of contrasts that are used for God to be able to speak to it. And I need to bring these out so that you get the whole Uh, intent of the message. Look at these contrasts. Jesus is the first and the last. He was dead, but now he's alive. He says, you were in poverty, but you're rich. Man, imagine that. You're, You're in poverty, but you're rich. Those opposing you say they are Jews, but they are not. And look at this. You find life in the face of death. What's going on here with all these contrasts? these folks were being persecuted by the Jews. Now remember, early Christians still considered themselves Jewish. There was a real advantage to that because through a lot of bloodshed, through a lot of hardship, the Jewish people had managed to obtain from the Roman government freedom from, exempt from, exemption from the emperor cult. They did not have to say Caesar is Lord. And you go, well, why were the early Christians persecuted for that? Because these early Jews, from the best we can gather from the documents that we have in those days and the historical records, was these early Christians made these Jews feel threatened because they talked about another king named Jesus. And by talking about this king named Jesus, that he was the only king, they were afraid that they were going to lose that status. There had been, in AD 60, there had been a Judean revolt, and the Judean revolt had resulted in a heavy tax upon all the Jews no matter whether you participated in the revolt or not. It's kind of like the Germans in the First World War, World war They didn't participate in the war, they still had to be a part of paying reparations. Our grandchildren will pay for decisions that we make as a nation today. We pay for mistakes others have made. It's just a part of life. It's not fair, but that's what happened to the Jews. And so the Christians were being kicked out of, and we'll look at the the Philadelphian church later, Christians were being kicked out of the synagogues in Smyrna and Philadelphia. Remember, where did Paul in the book of Acts, where did Paul first go and preach? The synagogues, unless he went to some place and, and that he wasn't welcome, he went to the synagogues. You've got to remember that the early church, the early church was primarily a Jewish church. Priests were being converted. Levites were being converted. There was a great revival. It was Jewish people that turned the world upside down for Christ. It was only after this persecution began to happen, and we believe that this epistle to the Smyrna church is the background for the gospel of John because there's so many similarities between what's happening here now remember I just mentioned to you Polycarp the Jews betrayed Polycarp they said Polycarp was not a Jew he was a Jew they betrayed Polycarp and Polycarp ended up being martyred for the faith this is lengthy but I think you'll enjoy this the church of God which sojourneth at this is written by Irenaeus who, who was a disciple of Polycarp. He was one of the converts under Polycarp. The Church of God which sojourneth at Smyrna to the Church of God. We write to you, brethren, an account of what befell those that suffered martyrdom, especially the blessed Polycarp. Remember, he was a disciple of John, he was a the elder of Ephesus who stayed the persecution, having as it were, set his seal upon it by his martyrdom. Who could fail to admire their nobleness and patient endurance and loyalty to the master? That's Jesus. Seeing that when they were so torn by lashes that the mechanisms of their flesh were visible, even as far as the inward veins and arteries, they endured patiently so that the very bystanders had pity and wept while they themselves reached such a pitch of bravery that none of them uttered a cry or a groan thus showing to all of us that at that hour the martyrs of Christ being tortured were absent from the flesh or rather that the Lord was standing by and conversing with them and giving heed unto the grace of Christ they despised the tortures of this world. The eyes of their heart they gazed upon the good things which are reserved for those who endure patiently. Things which neither eye hath heard, excuse me ear hath heard nor eye hath seen neither hath entered into the heart of man. If thou supposest vainly, this is Polycarp talking. If thou supposest vainly that I will swear by the genius of Caesar as thou sayest and faintest, thou art ignorant. Who am I? Hear thou plainly, I am a Christian. But if thou would learnest the doctrine of Christianity speaking to the the Asiarch of Ephesus, he said, assign me a day, give me a hearing, whereupon the proconsul of the Asiarch said to him, I have wild beasts here, and I will throw thee to them except thou repent. But he said, call for them. For the repentance from better to worse is a change not permitted to us. But it is a noble thing to change from untowardness to righteousness. And then he said to him, I will cause you to be consumed by fire if thou despisest the wild beast unless thou repent. But Polycarp says, Thou threatenest that fire which burneth for a season and after a little while is quenched. For thou art ignorant of the fire of the future judgment and eternal punishment which is reserved for the ungodly. Why delayest thou? Come, do what thou wilt. We ought to give the Lord a hand of praise for that testimony tonight. That is powerful, powerful, powerful. Then when I hear people say, well, pastor, I'm just afraid of what they will think. You silly little child. There is more power in heaven available to you than you could ever dream if you will simply take a stand for Christ. God will bear witness with you that doesn't mean you've got to be obnoxious. That doesn't mean you've got to be abrasive. Polycarp was beloved even by unbelievers, but there was a movement because they were so afraid of the economic insecurities that would happen. You see, Pastor, how do you know this? Well, we know this from history because Rome didn't go out looking for these sort of things. Remember how Pilate didn't want anything to do with Jesus, Festus didn't want anything to do with Paul. Agrippa said if he hadn't appealed to Caesar, you know, we wouldn't even have to fool with this. Rome didn't have the mechanisms to be out looking for every little religious heretic. Remember, Ephesus attracted all kinds of false teachers and there were all kinds of false cults laying around. The reason this happened was because he was betrayed. And Jesus calls those Jews that betrayed them, he called them the synagogue of Satan. Now, we need to be careful here for just a moment, because this phrase, synagogue of Satan, has been so abused and bandied about in a way that has been racially unjust and has been racially understood and has created all sorts of anti-Semitic things. It's a very abused saying. The reason that Jesus was saying this is because they were accusing their brethren— Jewish Christians, the same way that Satan accuses the brethren. What's one of the titles of Old Sleuth He is the accuser of the, and the sister in two. You don't escape it either. In other words, Satan is the accuser. But to understand this, you've got to, this is important. This was a Jewish debate. This was not a Gentile debate. This was a Jewish debate. How many of you have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? I've been where they were discovered at, the Dead Sea Scrolls. And I've actually got to see some of them on display when I was in Israel studying. And, 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 and those of you that want to go with Becky and I, when we go to um, the, museum of the New Museum of the Bible— Israel is actually, for the first time, letting some of them out, and they're gonna be at the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. It was gonna be an incredible experience. But there are documents from the Dead Sea Scrolls where the Jews call the rest, of, excuse me, where those Jews at Qumran, which is where they was at, those Jews at Qumran who were very devout, we believe that John the Baptist lived with those Jews in Qumran, they called the rest of the Jewish people the Assembly of Satan. So this is a Jewish debate going on. It's the same thing that God said to people that were racially Jewish in the Old Testament, but they were unfaithful to him, and they were, to use a King James word, they were harlotting or whoring after other gods. They were committing spiritual adultery with other gods. It's the same thing the prophets did. And the Christians that saw themselves as Jews, Jesus saw them as Jews, because we have been grafted into the body of Christ, But now, they're being accused by their Jewish brother and Jesus says to them, you're gonna be tested for 10 days. You're gonna be cast into prison for 10 days. And this 10 days, it could be literal or it could be figurative. We don't really know. I tend to think it's figurative because numbers are very important in the book of Revelation. I don't have time to deal with that tonight, but in another message, I will talk to you about the use of numbers in the book of Revelation. 10 is a very, very significant number. 12 is a very significant number. You know, those multiples of those numbers are important. We'll get to that later. But usually when you went to prison in Rome, you were going to prison to either for a trial or for an execution, You were going to prison for a trial or execution. You remember that Daniel and his friends were tested for 10 days. And during this period of testing for 10 days, they did not eat the food from the king's table. And the reason they didn't eat the food from the king's table was because the food had been dedicated to idols. You remember how the Pharisees, are you still tracking with me tonight? You remember how the Pharisees got so upset with Jesus for eating with tax collectors and prostitutes and publicans and sinners. Do you remember that? The reason they got so upset with him is because very, very orthodox Jewish people considered eating at a table with someone as covenantal unfaithfulness because eating together, sharing a meal together, meant that you were in covenant with them. And what Daniel and his three friends were doing is they were refusing to compromise with the pagan religion because the king of Babylon considered himself to be God. And when you ate with him, you were pledging your loyalty to him. When I invite you into my home or you invite me into your home, one of the main reasons you invite, we invite one another in is because we trust one another. There is a loyalty to one another. Yesterday, one of my neighbors stopped me and says, will you come visit our home and pray for my husband this week? There is a high trust level. I'm being invited into their home. You're invited into people's home. There's a covenant that we have together. Some of you live in neighborhoods that are called, have covenants, and in those covenants, you put your garbage cans behind your house, right? Because if you don't have that covenant, there are some lazy bums, they're gonna leave their garbage cans and their mop buckets and everything right out in front of the house, which brings the value of the neighborhood down. Covenant was really huge in the Bible, and it's huge to you and I. And so what they did in this test is they were saying, check us out. That's an old 70s phrase. Check us out. If we're not as healthy as the rest of these folks after 10 days, they're saying, they didn't, it's not said this way, but they're saying, then God has failed us. Then we will eat the food from the king's table. Because the king thought he had conquered Jehovah by conquering Jerusalem. And they knew the reason Jeremiah had made it very clear why Jerusalem was being conquered, it was because of their covenantal unfaithfulness and their spiritual holotry. They knew that God was still with them, and when they were checked out after ten days of testing, they were found to be in better shape and healthier and look better than their counterparts as well. What you're seeing here is Jesus saying this church is going to be tested. You're not just seeing a glimpse of the faith pardon me, the faith of the church, but you're seeing a glimpse of what God is saying to persecuted Christians in Sudan, in Asia, in the Middle East, and unfortunately, Christian bakers, people who make cakes, who take a step for their faith in America today. So number one, the church is encouraged, don't be afraid. Those who will receive, those who overcome will receive a crown, All of us are going to have to face a test. In this passage, we just read about Antipas, who was the faithful witness, no matter what the cost. And all of us will have to persevere to overcome that test. Let me give you just, I love theology, you know that. Arminians teach that you've got to persevere in order to gain heaven. Calvinists teach that if you don't persevere, you were never saved in the, same, in the first place. So that's why you didn't make heaven. You were never really saved. They're both saying the same thing, although they would fight like cats and dogs if they heard me say that to you. But the Arminians are saying, you've got to persevere if you're going to make it. You've got to overcome. Jesus is saying, you've got to overcome. Billy Graham was saying, who was an Arminian, Billy Graham was saying, you've got to to understand there is power there's something good about suffering and he says but you do it in the power of christ not in gritting your teeth and doing it this church had been tempted to compromise but they were faithful jesus has nothing bad to say about this church our temptations today are sexual they're financial they're racial I grew up in the days of civil riots, of of, of the civil rights riots. I grew up knowing about the Ku Klux Klan. My family, my father, nobody, like that was a part of the Ku Klux Klan. But part of the things that people don't understand was, and this is very thin ice to get on, and and it's going to be on the internet anyway, but when When Nathan Forrest originally founded the Ku Klux Klan, it was founded as a Bible study and as a place for young Southern soldiers to gather to worship. It was co-opted. It was co-opted by racists. And that's the reason it's so important that we pass our faith on to our children. It was co-opted by racists. And so Christianity in Indiana, Christianity was co-opted by clan leader Sam Bowers to justify. He used the Bible and he used Christianity to justify their violent activity. And then a very popular Baptist pastor by the name of Douglas Hudgens used the Bible and Christianity to justify segregation and violence that was being promoted by his church members against black people in their community. Friends, it's important for us to understand being white or black or yellow or red doesn't make you better or inferior to anybody else. Jesus died for everybody. And what we were having, we were having in our nation at that time one of these Smyrna struggles because it was real easy for business. I preached in a town, I preached in a town where the businesses boycotted the church, actively boycotted the church because the church allowed a young black man to come into that congregation. Pastor called me. There were people that were leaving the church and says, I can't stay a member of the church because I will lose business. They were facing economic temptation. There were some that got mad because there was one black man who came into that church. Young black kid, I should say, came into that church He said, would you come? I came, and I preached, and I visited local meetings. I met the young black man. He was being raised by a drug-addicted mother. We took him under our wings. We got him a scholarship. Today, he is a medical doctor because the church got behind him. God promoted and used that pastor, and he became a missionary to Israel where he had rich and fruitful ministry among the Jewish people there. God did incredible things for him, and he's beloved, and he just recently... Lost one of his sons so tragically and is grieving today. You see, all of us are going to face some sort of temptation. All of us are going to face some sort of temptation. And in order to overcome, you and I have got to remember this suffering church and remember what Billy Graham. When we value what the world does, we forfeit our witness for Christ. And then Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10, the devil is given power to imprison and kill them. And obviously, I'm not going to be able to finish this message tonight. So let's just wrap this up right here. They're promised that crown. And here's what I'd like to close it with tonight. How do you and I overcome? In Ephesus, we have to return to our first love for Christ and our first love for lost people. In Smyrna, we must be faithful to death. I'll say it again. Every one of us, are going to face a test of our faith that's going to require us to die in some way, shape, or form. Maybe not physically. Die to our reputation. Die to a dream. Die to a desire. But Jesus says in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10 to another church, because you have obeyed my command to persevere, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. This church, Smyrna, is only one of two churches that doesn't receive any rebukes from Christ. There's something about suffering that purifies and purges the church. Paul wrote to young Pastor Timothy, yes, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, read it with me, will suffer persecution. And those that came before us certainly did. I love you. I'm so sorry that I couldn't finish it. I really thought I could finish all of this tonight, but um, we'll come back with part two of part two. Okay? Let's stand together. I'm going to invite you to come and bring your notes this evening. If you need to leave, please don't feel bad about doing that. But, um, I'm going to invite you to come tonight. There's so much here for us to pray about. There's so much here for us to to talk to the Lord about as well. And so I'm going to invite you to just bring your notes and find a place here in the altar. Mark, if you will lead us in a worship course. Jesus, I love you now more than ever. I really, really do. And yet I feel what the hymn writer said from time to time in my spirit. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And so my prayer is, here's my heart, take and seal it. May my worship be fresh. Oh Lord, why would I not seek more and more of your Holy Spirit? Why? Come come on, just find a place to pray. Why would I not seek the Spirit of God to overflow in my life, to be baptized in your Spirit? And Lord, sometimes the task becomes more important to me than people. And you gently convict me and remind me that the task is people. For how can I love you unless I love God? So I pray that you will give us a deep, deep sense of love for our community, a deep love for our schools, a deep love for the businesses in our community. I ask you, Jesus, tonight, yes, we will guard the word of faith that's been deposited in our hearts and that our doctrine will be pure. I pray that our small group leaders and my preaching, teaching, Lord, that the family devotions in our homes, we're always going to be doctrinally pure. But may we not be insulated and isolated from this world. You tell us in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 27, That we're to love the city. We're to work for the good of the city that we live in. To build homes and plant orchards and vineyards. And Lord, I'm not aware of any of us that are suffering persecution. But I am aware that, Lord, that our city this metro area, like so many others, that there are seats of darkness and power that seeks to manifest itself against the witness of the church. There are calls to deny Christ, there are seductions and temptations for wealth. made in a dishonest way, Lord. There are calls and temptations, Lord, of sexual immorality and unfaithfulness. So our persecution may come in a different way, Father. I don't know, but maybe our prosperity, maybe our peace, Maybe our freedoms have lulled us to sleep to where we no longer take seriously our responsibility to be light and salt in this community we live in. God, there's still so many unreached people groups in the world. God, unreached peoples who need a missionary, a pastor. I pray Jesus in your name for those who are suffering tonight. They're cast into prison. Their families are taken away from them. God, they lose their businesses and their homes all because they named the name of Jesus. Lord, there are polycarps who live among us today. (laughs) And they boldly say, bring it. Bring it for this one hour of suffering will usher me into the very presence of God himself. Bring it, for the flash of your sword will simply escort me into heaven. Oh, the blast of your bomb in our church will only swing open those pearly gates for us as we go into the presence of Christ. Bring it. Oh, God, give to us that same conviction, that same faith, I pray in the name of Jesus. hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah. God, we want to wear the victor's crown, not a crown of pine or a crown of olive not a crown of salary, Lord. We want to wear the victor's crown. We want access to that tree of life with you forever. So God, teach us to persevere. Teach us to persevere, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Blessed be your name, Lord. Blessed be your name. God, I ask you to walk among our church. I thank you that I know that you're here with us. Lord, we want our lamp burning brightly. I pray, fill Woodland. God, fill us with a fresh oil from heaven. Lord, pour the oil on so that the flame will burn hotter and brighter than ever before. Lord, if there is a leak, you know where that leak is. Patch it, I pray, with the pure gold of heaven. we covet your anointing lord we covet the anointing of god jesus 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 and lord i thank you that there are angels all about us But I pray that our pulpit will always be a place where the word of God is heard. And I pray that you'll give us ears to hear. And I ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And everybody said, amen, amen.